Does Alien Covenant's opening scene have something to say about humans and our relationship with God? We will jump into that and much, much more. We are back for season two of the Impactful Writing Podcast with seven new shows. Seven new shows focused on great movie openings, starting today with the opening scene of Alien Covenant. I'm Jay Shear. I'm about to introduce Caleb Monroe. This is the Impactful Writing Podcast, which is produced by the Reclamation Society and is part of the Story Geeks Network and the Art of Storytelling YouTube channel. Caleb, it's good to see you again. Yes, good to see you. Greetings from London. Yeah, greetings from London. And I was I was joking with Caleb because this is the day after the fourth, and he's got a giant he's got a giant British flag right behind him. <laughs> we're we're back to being decorate the conference room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I think it's really funny is that if you ask anybody, uh, people in the US are the only people who think that Revolutionary War jokes are still funny. <laughs> However many years it is post-Revolutionary War, we're still making the jokes and we think they're funny and like everyone as else funny, like, As funny as a war can be. <laughs> it's funny as a <laughs> tragedy plus time, right? It's comedy, yes, I guess, exactly. I don't know. There's too much time for most people, but Americans are still caught up on making fun of that. Um, so let's get into this, Caleb. Uh, great movie openings. Um, well, before I go into that, is there anything is there anything new? I know that you had a you had a short story published. Um, anything else that you've been working on that you want to just give a shout out to, or anything else that has happened to you recently that you want to bring up? Um, not really. I'm in a phase of what I call iceberg writing, uh, where ninety percent of an iceberg is below the surface. So, so much of the job that you do as a writer. It's just not, there's nothing to show people yet. There's no, there's nothing above the surface yet. So I'm, I'm, that's the season that I'm in as a writer. I did have a short story come out last month mm. called Echoes. And you can find that information for that on my website. But other than that, I'm, I'm being, I'm very industrious. It's just iceberg in industry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but um you talked about like what part of the writing process you're in. I'm actually in like sort of like the executive producer sort of mind frame because we are changing the cover of our novel. Uh, we are changing the book description of our novel, both of which were fairly non-traditional. And so we're trying to kind of make them a little bit more traditional. The new book cover is phenomenal. Nathan Sheck uh, worked on it, taking the art from Malachi Ward and kind of updating it a little bit. But it's interesting to go through the different phases of the types of work you're you're doing in relationship to your creative projects. Um, but I'm in that kind of mode right now. Um, in fact, I need to get you a copy of that. Um, and I actually we're gonna we're getting close to having a full release of the audiobook because right now it's only been coming out in chapters. But there's only like I don't know five more chapters to come out before it, we can actually publish it as a full audiobook. So we're kind of in a fun a fun space, but. I'm not in as much of a writing space. I've still been doing writing here and there just because I, I feel like I need to, but um, it is kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's always fun when something comes out in the world, but it's also a strange experience because emotionally you finished that project a long time ago <laughs> yeah, exactly. and sometimes years ago. And you're, what you're emotionally invested in right now as a writer is several years down the road from whatever it is that's coming out that you're having to talk to people about or, or promote. And so it creates a really interesting headspace where you're, um, you're enjoying it in your head, but your heart has already moved on, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, it's very, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And actually, to your point, one of the nice things about having the audiobook still being released and still being worked on is that it actually gets me back into that space really fast because I'm experiencing... I'm experiencing my own writing that I've already heard performed, but now it's mastered and it's all together, which I have not heard before. Um, and then we review it and we, and we release it. And that's really cool because what it does, I mean, there's always, there's always the part of it where you're like, Oh man, if, if I could record that line again, I would record it again. Right. There's always that part of it. And that, that's not, mm -hmm. nothing to say about the actors necessarily. It could be my line that I just thought like, Oh, I made that kind of a convoluted line or whatever. But um, but that process, it does. But for the most part, I actually just am more excited about it because every time I hear it, I go, oh, yeah, that sounds even better than I remember it sounding before. So that's that's a yeah. really cool. That's a really cool experience. I should say that that experience that I'm describing, it's also like the middle of the bow tie. Right. So over mm -hmm. here you have the, you know, the making it and the enjoyment. Then you got the little knot in the middle. 
But then the other side, which goes on for the rest of the life of that story and your life and sometimes beyond, uh, if you're lucky, is that it's made new by everyone who reads it for the first time. And when, so yes. when, you, when you start getting exposed to audience reactions, uh, when you do a signing or, you know, one of my, I'm just going to share this story because it's, it's a story that illustrates just how fun it can be. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite stories encountering a reader. This was when I was, I was still only writing part time, but I had comics coming out and I was working at a comic shop up on Sunset Boulevard, the largest comic shop west of the Mississippi at the time called Meltdown. <laughs> and a customer was actually here in the UK. He came and he walked right up the counter where I was standing. And he's, he said, I'm looking for issues three and four of the remnant, which was a series I had written. Oh, <laughs> had that's gotten, awesome. He had gotten issues one and two in the UK and he had enjoyed it enough that when he came to the States, he wanted to make sure he got three and four while he was over here. Oh, and awesome. I got to, I just happened to be the person that he came to ask that question of, and he got those issues and it was really great to meet him and talk to him. But that's something that just makes a project alive all over again. And in all sorts of new ways, you know, and that never ends. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really that's really, really fun. Um, uh, so I think that we can jump into this great movie opening series now. Mm -hmm. um, we've spent a lot of time talking about writing technique. We've spent a lot of time talking about writing philosophy. And now we're just going to take all of those things that we've already talked about and then see them <laughs> at play in some of the best forms that they occur in. Uh, so we got a whole series and I'll talk about what the other movies are coming up so that if you're listening to this series, you can watch those movies in advance of us talking about them. And if you have questions for us, you can go to our Story Geeks Facebook group and leave questions for us that you want us to address in regards to those movie openings. Um, but we're starting with Alien Covenant. Uh, this was the first movie that you mentioned when I said, hey, what, what about we do a series on great opening scenes and you're like yeah alien covenant i'm like okay cool i've never seen alien covenant i'll go watch it um and i have now seen it it is uh i'll i'll put a link to it uh if you listening if you're listening to this or if you're watching this on youtube and there's no link in the description to the opening scene i did find it on vimeo so i will post a link to it assuming that it is still there um and if i didn't do that just on the facebook group let me know um but in this scene let's set up this scene right um, in this scene, David, we should, we should also just say, if you haven't seen any of these movies, it's going to be incredibly spoiled, uh, within oh. about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, totally. We're going to spoil so just everything. Know that. Just know that if you, if you like the movies about before you see it, great. But if not, yeah. pause, pause here, go watch it and come back. Yeah. Yeah. As with anything with the story geeks podcast, if it, unless it <laughs> says no spoilers, like yeah, there's spoilers, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be crazy. Right. So yeah. that's, I'm well, this is really that. the first, this is the first time we've done that really. So I think that's why that's like, I was true. like, we got to say it. Cause you and I are usually talking about storytelling in general. We're not talking about a specific yeah. piece. Yeah. It's I a guess good it's point. Not, except for when we did that episode of us back in the, but uh, I was, yeah, we, yeah. yeah, that was that was a great episode. Yeah, so so um, but yeah, spoiler alert for this entire series. I forget to say it because yeah, like you said, like we've been doing this other series that hasn't been very spoilery. Um, but yeah, definitely spoiler alert because I'm a, I'm literally about to start spoiling it <laughs> right now. Um, so this opening scene is set up where David, who is the android from Prometheus, I don't know if it's androids the right word, but I would assume it's some form of android. Uh, he's from Prometheus and he's meeting his creator who, who is, uh, Peter Wayland. And in your opinion, Caleb, you told me, Hey, this is a great movie opening that we've got to talk about. What makes alien covenants opening scene so compelling to you? Uh, let's see if I can put it into words, uh, mm. I, but I, here's why this came to mind immediately. Cause I remember thinking to myself, in the moment, as I watched the movie for the first time in theaters at the amazing Arclight and much amazing and much lamented Arclight Theater, which closed a few uh, months ago due to COVID, uh, right there in Hollywood, um, I remember thinking to myself as that scene ended and we cut to space and the words "Alien Covenant" slowly appear on the screen. I remember thinking, "What a masterful opening!" 
And that's a that's a rare thought that almost a movie almost never pulls me in that deeply that quickly. And also I tend to the first time I watch anything, I tend to not have my my craft hat on at all. I don't pay right. attention. Like I just enjoy the story. But that one, it stood out to me and I was like, that was masterful. Mm. Um, I didn't know where the story was going, right? But I knew there at the five and a half minute mark, I already knew that I was fully on board for the entire ride. I knew that it would be an aliens movie. <laughs> right. But I also knew that it was going to be subtle. It was going to be philosophical and it was going to be visually beautiful, mm. um, which is not necessarily the definition of an alien movie mm. up to that point. Mm. Um, and, and as the film unfolded, of course, you come to understand that that opening scene also gave us the genre, uh, right. which I will argue later is not science fiction, uh, the theme and the flaw that would make the main character a villain rather than mm. a hero. So there was a whole lot of craft in those those few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to unpack a lot of that as we go. And I, I agree. And the one thing that I would, um, so I am not like a diehard fan of the aliens, uh, franchise necessarily. Mm -hmm. I like it a lot. They're very well done movies. It's just not necessarily my, my, they're not necessarily my favorite movies. Um, we have some people on the story geeks, uh, podcast on the story geeks team who love it. Like Tim Wozni loves aliens. So th this is like right up his alley. Um, I think that one of the things that you just mentioned about this opening scene is that it's pretty unexpected. I know that Prometheus got into some of that philosophical type of stuff um, as it kind of carried the franchise forward. But we're talking about we're talking about a, a franchise that one time did Alien versus Predator, which is there's no philosophy there. <laughs> this is not that's not like a, a part of the framework. Um, well, the, the philosophy is is Thomas Hobbes, right? Life is brutish, nasty, and short. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And so, so to get this to get this quiet, philosophical opening scene is completely unexpected. Yeah, you could make an argument that Prometheus sort of sets it up to be able to do that well, um, but at the same time, you know, this is a series that is more popular as science fiction horror. Not necessarily, not, not that this movie isn't, by the way, this movie gets into some of those things. Obviously, we'll talk about genre, but this scene is quiet. It's putting us through a completely a completely different set of emotions to start out the film with. Um, it's asking us to think as opposed to just respond in feeling. It's asking us to do a little bit of both. Um, it's a character study. This opening scene is a character study, right? Um, it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a philosophical and somewhat theological exchange that has something to say about archetypes um, and maybe even hints at a creation's desire to rival its own creator. That's why I let off this whole show saying like, is it, is it giving commentary about, um, about the human beings and our nature, our relationship with God or, or uh, creation itself or mother nature, if you will, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, but here's my favorite aspect of the scene before we dive into other parts of it. But my favorite aspect of the scene is the incredible subtle nature of the tension between the creator and it's in its in his creative being in this case. And the tension is it's done so well in such a subtle way that it's that's what I think makes it truly a masterful scene. Cuz it could be like, oh this is an interesting scene that sets up something philosophical, but it, there's a moment in the scene which we'll get into where it it just shifts ever so slightly and you go oh my gosh that's scary that 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 sets up why this movie is going to be what this movie is and i i loved that aspect of it um it's a slow scene it's quiet we hear the soft patter of david's bare feet on the hard floor he ends up playing the piano um wayland tells david that he's created him and that he's david's father and then near the end of the scene wayland asks david to pour him some tea this is where the tension starts well you could argue that the tension's building a little bit before that but and then there's a moment where david hesitates so wayland says can you pour me some tea and david just he just hesitates he doesn't just obey so what's happening in this scene caleb what's happening what's it all about well i mean first we should say that prometheus was explicitly ontological slash theological there were characters 
multiple characters talking openly about faith. Now they had faith in different things, right. um, but the, but the main character Shaw, she wore a cross necklace, and they talked about it. Um, yeah. And so we should say that this is, as a writer, it's not accidental. You know, they they. <laughs> The, the filmmakers are wanting to have a conversation about these things. They're explicit about it. They, they, that's part of the story. And so here they continue that and you get a lot of layers of, of, of ontology, theology, faith, whatever going on like right here in the scene. But what we're seeing is Wayland recreating here his own version of God and Adam walking through nature in the Garden of Eden in the cool, uh, in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening. Yeah. Uh, but Wayland reveals himself here to be cruel, petty, jealous, and he has chosen to recreate this scene um, in a place, to have it take place in a, in a sterile monument to human achievement rather than the living grandeur of nature that is visible right through the window. Mm. Um, which, and this, this all tells us everything that we need to know about Wayland's godhood, that he's cruel, petty, jealous, self-obsessed God of limited imagination. And <laughs> we, we know that the kind of children that that kind of father creates. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... That's an excellent analysis. I love the fact that you said it takes place inside as opposed to outside, which is, you know, like you can just see the beauty of the outside. And all there is in that room is, you know, there might be a, there might be another piece of furniture off to the side, but it's primarily just the piano. Clearly There's two something. chairs, the same chair, two chairs, the piano. Exactly. Painting and a statue. That's it. Yeah. And the chair oh, is the like table a throne. For yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the, and, the, and the chair is that the aspect of the throne, which in and of itself is uh, is interesting. Wayland talks about you know the word I, the word I was using here to describe what you just very articulately said in terms of what evidence there is of this word being true is hubris. Wayland is full of hubris. He he even says to his own creation, "I've created you so that we can go find the creator of of me." Right? Like it's there's there's a there's a sense that like. It, it, almost as if he's proving his worth to his creator by creating something else and 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 being an overlord of that. Um, you talked about this already, but there, there's he goes in, and this is where the tension of the scene comes in. This is what I this is what I really like about it. He goes into the scene basically telling his creation, "I'm superior to you," but his creation within a matter of minutes seconds i mean this scene is only like about four and a half minutes long if you include all the different parts of the credits and stuff that appear here in the course of minutes the creation realizes i am superior to my creator in several different ways right um this is this is when the creator is telling the creation that i am superior to you the creation realizing well i'm gonna outlive you one which he says right like mm -hmm. and and two i can acquire knowledge far faster than you can because not only have you given a bunch of it to me when i came into reality when i woke up when i opened my eye this all starts with a close-up of an eye shot as soon as he opened his eye he was full of knowledge we know that because he starts playing something on the piano um right away he knows how to play it he knows all of the the functions of playing a piano he's imbued with knowledge to a certain extent and knows that he can collect the knowledge faster than um, his creator and can ask deeper questions than his creator is even ready to deal with right in the first two minutes of his of his uh, approaching reality. And so I think that just just says like Wayland's only counterpoint to that is to demand more, um, which shows that he's not truly in control of the situation, but rather that he has attempted to take control of it. And just that subtleness, that subtleness you could have done. You could have showcased that in an opening scene, in a way that was really in your face. And they went, "No, let's not do that. Let's just do it in as subtle a way as possible." Um, for a character, by the way, uh, who really, truly—I mean, Waylon doesn't show up again in this film. This is the only time he's he's in this film. Um, and one of the things that I I wanted to point out specifically is that there is a moment. And this is what I think is a really interesting comparison to what you said about 
um, the creation narrative wherein God walks with Adam in the garden. There's a moment in this creation narrative where Wayland is dealing with his own creation where David actually realizes he has free will. Um, he realizes that again, very early on. And you can tell he, there's a couple, there's a couple ways we know that the first way is when Waylon tells him to play something on the piano and he gets to choose whatever he wants to play. Um, it's very interesting again, to your point that Waylon's first response to David's task that he has assigned to David is actually a negative one because he says, you picked something that's really not as good as it could be unless you had a full orchestra, but you're just sitting here in front of you in a piano. So there's a, there's a, there's a, you said the relationship is sort of obvious and it is, this is a creator who's like, Oh, you're not good. At, you're never going to be as good as me. And a creation that is realizing incredibly rapidly that he's actually maybe better <laughs> than, than his creator. Um, which I think is just, again, it's, it's giving us that picture of, of what that hubris looks like. So, um, the fact that David realizes he has free will and then challenges Waylon very quickly, uh, I thought was really artistically and uh, amazingly well done, um, by the way. Yeah, I am. Um, so a few other things. Another way that the writers are explicitly playing with 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 the biblical creation story is mm. that David names himself, um, ah. you know, in, in Genesis, the first, first task that the human is given is to name the animals. Mm -hmm. uh, God brings the animals and the human names them. And it's so this act of naming. And so we see here that that's being echoed. Uh, David is, is being asked to name himself and, there's a lot of interesting dimensions to that. Madeline Langle, who wrote uh, Wrinkle in Time and, and all of those mm. books, she talks in several places about how she thinks naming is one of the primary um, functions of artists mm. is to name things, to give us names for experiences, uh, to tell us who we are, all of that sort of stuff. So you are seeing an, an artistic moment there. It's before he's it's before he sat down at the piano. Now he is surrounded by art and he's looking at this thing and you have this artistic moment where he gets to name himself. So that's that's in, that's interesting. And I think that adds just a lot of dimension to the scene. Right. Also something that we, it doesn't really play out until later in the film. But here, like I said, we know the kind of child that this kind of father creates, you know? Yes. And later we get what is essentially a better version of David in Walter. Right. He's morally better. He's physically better. But we also learned that those improvements were made after Wayland was gone, that Wayland could, Wayland could only create the flawed version because he right. was so flawed and that other people had to improve upon it, uh, you know, which is, is, is an interesting way to think about the creative act there. Yeah, I love I love that aspect of it too, and and a much gentler Walter, a much less uh, focused on self uh, Walter, comparative to David. Even though they're of the same, you know, if you're going to call a robot species a species, <laughs> they're of the same the same kind of build. Um, by the way, I should mention if you're watching live, go ahead and ask us a question live. If you're watching this later. Um, and you have a question for us to address as part of the, either this movie or the, the upcoming series of movies, feel free and leave those in the comments um, of any of the YouTube videos as you watch, and we will try to address those, or leave them on Facebook if you want to, and we'll try to address those um, as we get through them. Before we do continue, I do want to thank today's sponsor. We have a sponsor of this, uh, most of this series at least, and I want to give you three ways to support the show. The first is to actually check out our sponsor's um, book door of a door lost legends and sagas of pre-flood earth this is what it looks like let me hold up the cover if you see it you can see it on uh on amazon and check that out um immerse yourself or immerse your imagination in a saga formed before time was thought and reality dawned door of a door lost legends and sagas of pre-flood earth volume one creation angels war 
unleashes the account of eternity's most ancient bloody combat the legend of lucifer heaven's great war and the beginning of your adventure in the forgotten world of pre-flood earth the supreme supernatural fantasy series of our time await you door door volume one creation angels war is available now on barnes and noble and amazon via the link in the description down below novusrenaissance.com slash door of a door i'm gonna spell that it's gonna take me a little bit of time because that's a long link but that is n-o-v-u-s-r-e-n-a-i-s-s-a-n-c-e.com slash d-o-r dash v-a-h-d-o-r novusrenaissance.com slash door of a door click the link in the show notes to check it out i know caleb hasn't read that yet because i haven't um given him a copy of it but uh, I will say that we're going to do several videos, not Caleb and I, just myself, um, reviewing Door of a Door and discussing some of the deeper themes found in the story. One of the things I found really interesting, by the way, that I'll comment on in regards to this specifically is every once in a while, you have these moments where you're considering your faith and you go, oh, I have a new question that I had never thought of before. And as a storyteller, that happens to me in the context of a lot of storytelling types of things. And I, ha I had this one question. I, I, I thought to myself, what was Lucifer's motivation for actually turning away from, from God? Like, what was the motivation behind that behavior? And it's crazy because then I they get, literally gave me a copy of this. It's about that. <laughs> so there you go. This is now this is obviously this is obviously uh, Christian or creationist mythology, which means that we don't actually know. Uh, but this book explores that that theme and, and those things, which is which is really, really interesting and pretty insane that I was thinking about that before reading this book. So if you're into high fantasy and enjoy delving into creation myths and legends, you'll dig Door of a Door. Uh, plus, purchasing Door of a Door actually uh, helps us produce this show because the more kinds of sponsors we get, just like Door of a Door, the better it is for us and the more we're able to produce these shows for you. So go check that out. Again, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or go check out that link. And that link's in the description. Um, which I know is, would be very difficult if you're just listening. Go back and check out the description because the link's in there. In addition to our sponsor's story, be sure to check out the stories that Caleb and I have released as well. You can find The Mongolian Connection, the movie that Caleb co-wrote on most streaming platforms that allow for rentals. Last time I checked, it was available on Amazon Prime for free. That's how I watched it. And it actually has a great opening scene, by the way. So this is a great opening scene series. That movie has a great opening scene. Go check it out. Um, and you can learn more about some of the stories that he is writing over at CalebMonroe.com. Caleb, I haven't told you this yet, but I have a really good friend of mine who's a podcaster named Josh Taylor. And he is a giant fan of Peanuts. And I go, oh, well, my co-host <laughs> writes a bunch of Peanuts comics, man. And he goes, oh, I'm going to have to talk to him at some point. So it's just FYI. You might get a ping from... Peanuts from was, a, was a dream come true because I was a huge... You know, Peanuts is one of my favorite strips of all time. Yeah. And the entire time I was working on it, it felt very surreal. Like, am I really, am I really writing Charlie Brown? <laughs> <laughs> That's epic. And you, so he'll enjoy talking to you about that at some point in time. Uh, the book that I co-wrote with Nathan Sheck, Death of a Bounty Hunter, has made it, or uh, had made it to the semifinals of ScreenCraft's cinematic book competition. And it's in the process of getting a brand new cover, which would be really cool. Um, I'm trying to test this out because I feel like this is a, a good way of promoting the the book and you guys can tell me if this is enticing to you but i feel like death of a bounty hunter is sort of as if quentin tarantino <laughs> wrote a deep spiritual film <laughs> so check out uh death of a bounty hunter if you think that that would be interesting to you if that sounds compelling visit death of a bounty hunter.com and i also personally recommend that you check out our full cast audiobook version because i've been i took a trip across the country I'm now in Florida, by the way, on East Coast time. Um, and I and in that trip, we listened to some of that um, full cast audiobook version all like in a row. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool. I was really impressed with the actors that we brought into that project and, and the job that they did on that was fantastic. So links to all of those projects can be found in the show notes. And we really do appreciate your support. But we're going to get back into Alien Covenant here. Um, we have this listed, Caleb, as a great opening scene. What does it do for the story to begin the film with a scene like this one? So, I mean, I think I touched on, on much of this actually in my earlier answer without necessarily meaning to, but 
it gives us the tone, the genre, the theme, and the flaw. So tone-wise, like, like we said, it's subtle, philosophical, it's visually beautiful. Uh, the theme, I would say the theme of this and Prometheus is that we live in an infinite, mysterious universe where finite beings trying to play God will only create pain, death, and suffering. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. That should be on the that should be on the jacket cover of all the whole the whole franchise. <laughs> yes, and then the flaw, as you stated earlier, was hubris, uh, which David inherits from his maker. Um, he inherits hubris, even though there's not a genetic component. It's a father-son thing, you know? And then finally, I would say it gives us the genre, which I argue is not science fiction. Mm, yeah, I wanna hear this. What's, what's, what is this I, I think that Wuthering Heights is a Gothic story. Oh. Um, I mean, Wuthering Heights. I think Alien Covenant is a Gothic story, like Wuthering Heights, Bleak House, Great Expectations, Dracula, anything by Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. It's, the story takes place in, in dreary weather, at an ancient dark mansion with a lone disturbing occupant complete with hounds running across the moors <laughs> and uh, so i think this is actually a, a gothic story not a science fiction story Primarily. well it, it feels really gothic when you, you when you start to see what david has been doing on the planet in terms of his his creation i mean it almost it almost literally feels like you could replace that scene in a Frankenstein film and it would be very similar. I mean, it's very similar, right? Like it's very, very right up that, right up that, that alley. What are some of the, what are some of the elements that you think make up a powerful Gothic story? You know, that's, it's, it's a little hard to pin down because there's mm. so, so many things that get called Gothic. It's not a precise, <laughs> like any genre, it's not a scientific classification. True. Um, but I think uh, there's usually some aspect of a supernatural menace. Ah, uh, sure. Whether real or imagined. Right. Um, there's, there's usually a very strong aspect of being haunted by the past. Sure. Of of being enclosed emotionally in some way, as well as in a lone location, um, lonely. Um, I would say some of those are some of the major things. Is you know, if you make a movie out of them, they tend to take place mostly at night. <laughs> things like that. You know? <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, actually, the the loneliness aspect of it is really fascinating. Um, this is very apparent in the works of um, Tim Burton, who deals with a lot of goth, gothic type of themes. You have uh, the western, which I think is largely a person dealing with loneliness in terms of a societal societal shift towards moving into new territory and in that new territory having to find one's identity and develop a moral code around that now as somebody who's written a weird western recently this is like top of mind for me what's interesting what you say about the gothic aspect of it is the goth the gothic aspect of it is almost um, often found in an existing sort of more let's say victorian setting or or a uh, or even like a, even like Burton's Batman series it's this it's society has already formed it is already a mature entity culture is defined but it is it pushes people to loneliness as opposed to loneliness being inherent in the frontier with westerns loneliness doesn't feel like it should be a thing but we gravitate towards the gothic nature of something because when we feel lonely in when we're surrounded by people when we feel lonely, um, we go off into these spaces to deal with that loneliness in a way that a lot of gothic type stories are dealing with that sort of loneliness. A lot of times it, it relates to um, trying to create something that would understand our feelings or try to associate ourselves with something that would understand how we feel. Um, sometimes that's like, again, the supernatural component, <laughs> right? Um, whether it's like, you know, the type of thing where witches are trying to summon spiritual beings to comfort them, or whether it's that they're actually trying to have a creation event with like the Frankenstein monster type of an idea. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I, I actually a hundred percent agree with you um, that this is, 
definitely not science fiction. The, there's not a what if question here, really. There, I mean, there's not one to be seen. Um, it, I think Gothic, I would never have said that. So you have <laughs> you have landed on something that is, I think, very true, but I would not have come up with it myself. Um, I think that uh, a couple of things that I think this opening scene does on top of what you said, um, which I think is brilliant. Um, this opening scene does... It, the first thing it does is it actually creates a more relevant reason for this film to exist. So let me just talk about my experience with the, the alien franchise for a second. First film. Awesome. Second film. Great. Third film. Interesting. Still good. And then some things happened in between there. <laughs> some, some computer games happened, some alien versus predator happened, some things that I didn't really care too much about happened. Um, and then they started getting into this idea of faith, like you talked about, and asking a deeper question of these films than was originally asked. The earlier films in this franchise, I think, are predominantly man or humanity versus nature, wherein Ripley is man or human, um, and nature is represented by the aliens, right? This is the, the big, dark thing that exists, and we have to like deal with it in some way. It's a representation of lots of other things in our life that we have to deal with that just happen to be there. Um, as Now, over the course of time, what they've done is, especially with Prometheus, they've said, well, yeah, that's still part of this plot, but let's introduce some more world building and ask some more why questions or how questions. How do we survive um, to so going from how do we survive to why are we even here? Right. So, again, not a what if question, not a what if question at all, it, but it, but a why question. Why are we here and how do us butting up against one another? How does that start to shape the world around us? And in this in this example, profound ways. Right. There's profound ways of us rubbing up against one another and finding giant problems with us be, with us doing that. And so I think that, that I think that the best thing that this scene does it's, is it sets up a premise that is not just a feeling oriented premise, which is a lot of what the earlier films did, but is also not only a feelings oriented premise, but a thought provoking premise that requires your brain not to just sit back and and allow a set of emotions to wash over you, but that you actually consider the things that are happening and think about them as well. It won't let you just get away with just reacting from a feeling standpoint, which I thought I always like it when that when a movie does that for me. I mean, not, I shouldn't say always. I want to escape sometimes, too. <laughs> but I always appreciate when a movie does something along those lines. I, I should also point out, though, that in that in-between part where you're like a bunch of stuff happened, yeah. I, do have, I do have an incredibly soft spot for Alien Resurrection, the fourth movie. Uh, see, I don't even, rem I don't even remember it. I'm sure I've seen it at some point in time, but I, I just can't even remember. I mean, these, these are, again, it's not necessarily my preferred genre. Like for example, I, not that it's not done well, it's done fantastically, but, and, and obviously set off a whole, it's an inspiration for so many kinds of films, but like, I have found like a greater appreciation for, for like event horizon, let's say predominantly because event horizon is not just a, you can just react to it from a feelings perspective but if you actually ask a few questions and start to think about what that movie is saying about what hell is and how we can experience hell basically <laughs> right now anytime um it's really poignant that that film you could easily just watch that and be like oh it's kind of grotesque horror but if you ask a few questions alongside that movie it becomes we did a whole podcast on it it becomes a really a uh, powerful retrospective or asking yourself to, to become retrospective as, as you, as you think about it. Um, Have you ever seen in the mouth of madness? No. Is it, is it insane? It, it's, it's crazy. And for some reason, and I don't know what it is, but for some reason, event horizon and in the mouth of madness are linked in my brain. <laughs> um, uh, so thinking of one always makes me think of the other. So interesting that out there. If you like event horizon, I like Event Horizon, but only because I thought about it. Because when I when I first watched Event Horizon, 
my wife watched it with me and she was watching it with me just because she wanted me to watch a horror movie and wanted to see me squirm around and, and swear a lot, uh, which is what I do during horror movies because so, they cause me un, unimagined anxiety. But but if I'm able to understand conceptually with where someone was going with the horror, we talked about you talked about you mentioned the podcast we did on us earlier. Jordan, Jordan Peele is phenomenal at making you think and feel at the same time right and those and what he's so good at is making the thoughts and feelings coalesce because sometimes you can ask questions that make people think but not make them feel in any way that like brings that thinking back to the forefront he's phenomenal because he goes like i'm going to make you feel something and think something and they're going to coalesce so that your feelings and your thoughts are coming together to form a deeper understanding of the world um at least for me and uh, and I think that's phenomenal. So I'll have to maybe watch that, <laughs> maybe watch that in bright daylight in the early morning. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how that functions. Um, so let's get into got just a couple more questions for you, Caleb. As we talk about this opening scene, what can we learn from this scene? Not only as an audience, but also as storytellers and writings. What can we take away and learn from this particular scene? Yeah. So as I was thinking about this. I did the thing that I tend to do where I'm sort of like, okay. And then my brain like went this direction. And I do think that this opening can teach us this, but I'm not sure how useful this lesson will be to every writer. Ooh, okay. Um, just because we all have different ways of approaching a story. Yeah. But when I searched, I searched online for a PDF of the screenplay today before recording. Yes. But the one I found by John Logan didn't have the scene in it. It's just started with Covenant yeah. flying in space. Yep. And I'm not saying that he didn't write this scene because who knows what draft that was it, and, and, and <laughs> right. where in the process of creating the film it was. But what I think the big takeaway from that is, and so it's, it's more of a behind the scenes takeaway because I'm not talking about what's happening in the scene. I'm talking more about where it came from is there's a good chance, it's a very good chance that the opening scene for your movie is wrong. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Mongolian Connection earlier, the, the film that I co-wrote with Drew Thomas. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and listen to our episode where we talk about that, we talk about how through the writing process, we didn't know what the opening scene was. We had two scenes and they kept flipping. Mm. One would be first and then the next one would be first. Like every time we did a draft, they, they switched. Mm. And, I think we ended up with the right one happening right on screen and the, and, the, and the right one coming second. But sometimes you only can tell what the beginning is mm. once you've finished. Mm. And so uh, if you're at the beginning of starting a project, you probably don't know actually what you're about to write because there's so much discovery involved and there's so much that changes through the process of creating 120 pages of story. So when you finish a story, go back and there's a good chance that your opening scene is no longer, it's the opening scene for some, for another movie that you were planning to write back then. But now you have finished this movie and this movie needs a different opening. Mm. Um, I read, I can't remember the, James Altucher, he's a mm. nonfiction writer mostly. Mm. And actually entirely i don't think he's ever written any fiction he writes you know he writes business books and it talks about investing and things like that but uh, i read an essay by him online once long ago and he was talking about how to make your writing better and obviously he's talking about essays and, and nonfiction writing here but one of his rules was whatever your opening paragraph is delete it <laughs> because your second paragraph is probably where it actually starts and then and then he said and here's the the here's what you need to know about this rule. Even when you know the rule, it will still apply. Uh, <laughs> so even when you're like, you know, even when you're like, no, I'm going to start this in a way that I will not be removing the first paragraph, removing the first paragraph will still make it better. So, yeah. uh, and, and I think that that, oh, that's a pretty good piece of advice. And so even knowing that you, this might be the wrong opening scene, it's not going to prevent you from writing the wrong opening scene. <laughs> so yeah. come back to this after the ending. Uh, if you have a deadline, give yourself time to come back to this. Yeah. Um, but you, there's a good chance your opening scene is the wrong scene. Yeah. In fact, the last two things that I published um, had opening scenes that I came back to 
to your to exactly to your point like and usually you run into that problem for different reasons i ran into that problem like for example the the this scene in alien covenant seems to have been thought of as a creative way of bringing david as a character and the question that we're dealing with with david's own hubris back into light via a very character-based scene at the beginning of the film um a lot of times but i don't think we're supposed to i don't think we're supposed to um the reason why i bring this up is because i don't think we're necessarily supposed to care for david more it's rather to showcase how david could have ended up as we see him later in the film um i've had the opposite a little bit of an opposite problem where I have plotted out my stories very, you know, being the mechanic that I am, I plotted them out so much that oftentimes when I get to the end of it, I go, Oh, well, but there's reasons for people to care about these characters, but I would actually like for there to be a reason for, for people, for readers mostly or listeners for them to care about them earlier on. And so the scene that I'm inserting almost feels more like your um, Indiana Jones type of a scene or, you know, a lot of times uh, James Bond does this as well, where it's a scene that's not necessarily closely tied to what's going to happen in the rest of the film, but it is purposely put there so that you feel and think a certain way about the character as the character goes through the rest of the story, right? And I want to—I want you to think and feel about this character differently. So if, I'll give you a good example. In Death of a Bounty Hunter, what I wanted you to see was that this—that the main character was set up from a from a place of loneliness and isolation, and I had certain elements of that worked into the story. But I took the very first scene, rewrote it, Nathan and I both, to look and feel more directly like him experiencing that loneliness in the kind of pain that he might experience it from the very beginning so that you knew going in like this is a person who is an underdog i wanted you to know that this person was an, not not because i told you because that's that's not very interesting from a writing perspective but because i showed you and so from it's almost like this scene is put in the beginning because it's saying think about this character from a bigger picture and not that we want you to have sympathy for this character because there's really no sympathy that's being portrayed here, but almost how this character got to be where this character is and think about that as you watch the rest of the film. And it's, I think it's from that standpoint, it's really, 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 really fascinating. So, yeah. And, and of course you and I are talking about forms where you get to go back to the beginning when you're at the ending. <laughs> there's, there's serial forms of storytelling like comics where the first issue is on stands while you're writing your ending, you know, yeah. or TV works the same way. Like the episode's out, we're writing the finale, but the beginning is out there. We can't go back and change something in it. Um, right. Although Unless more and more, more, more TV just... rooms are trying to write the entire season at <laughs> right. once because right. of, often because of this very rule. But so if that's the case, I would just say, go back to the beginning, look at what the opening is and make sure that everything that you raised in that opening gets paid off in, in whatever the new ending of what your story has become, make yeah. sure all of that gets paid off. Yeah. And that's kind of the version that's the, in serial fiction. That's the version you can do of going back to the beginning. Yeah. I've also noticed uh, in serial fiction, a lot of times they'll do like around, let's say midway through the series, a lot of times they will do a retrospective episode and even give you a little bit of backstory in that kind of, which is kind of a way for solving, I think, for some of those issues. Like, oh, this this character, character could use some more sympathy. Let's do a throwback, right? Like do a prequel, if you will. A um, couple other things yeah. I wanted to say. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say Dan Simmons. Uh, who's a great author. He's won World Fantasy Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Hugo and Nebula. Uh, just, you know, if he wrote a genre, he he won an award in it just about. Uh, uh, and those were his first three novels, I should say. Those were the first ones. They were all yeah. big award winners in different genres. So I have a lot of 
respect and, a, and no small amount yeah. of awe for Dan Simmons as, an, as, a, as a writer. Sure. But I, there was a talk of his and I, it got turned into an essay and I have not been able to find it. I think, oh, it, I think, I think I read it. I must've read it online because I have some collections of essays by him and it's not in there, but anywhere he talks about how your opening scene, whatever is happening in it, what your opening scene is doing is giving you the DNA for the story that you're about to, mm. uh, that you're about to, you're being given, here's the, here's the DNA of this story. And so for instance, the, the human DNA gets expressed in billions of ways that are unique. No human yeah. being is the, is the same, but it's all this, it's all human DNA, right? Right. But elephant DNA, it's going to give you all sorts of different variations on elephants and the same thing with, um, dogs or, or, or anything of that sort. Yeah. So you're, you're opening, it may not be telling you how it's going to be expressed, but it is telling you what species it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So that's another way to, if that's helpful to think about it. Yeah, no, that's very helpful to think about it that way. Um, a couple of other things all throughout there is I think from this, what, you know, what is it we can learn from this? You'll notice that as you look at um, our great openings series and the movies that are coming up, which I'll get into in a bit, but um, one of the things, there's a couple different types of openings that are really popular. Uh, one is the slow burn. The other is the hit you in the face with action from the, from the moment you, you open, right? Um, this, is, this fits into the slow burn category, obviously. Um, and I think that the reason why, I think I actually tend to prefer slow burn openings based on what I, when we look at the series and what I like about the series. I heard this best explained by a opera singer, but I think that the same case can be made for storytellers. An opera singer said, you know, I used to focus, I've brought this up in the podcast before, so pardon me if you've heard this already, but the opera singer said, you know, I, I used to think that when I was early on in my career, that the point of being an opera singer was to hit the high notes. And what I would do is I would focus on hitting the high note and let everything that came before the high note just sort of be mediocre and not concentrate very much on it. And some veterans of opera approached me and said, you know, you really need to work some more. Your high notes are amazing, but you need to work on what comes before. And the context that this conversation was happening in, in was what is chemically going on in your brain, which you and I talk about a lot. We bring up chemi brain chemicals a lot related to storytelling. And the high note is the release of dopamine. The brain releases dopamine when it hears something that is beautiful, when, it hear, when, it's, when it's even probably scared. Like the thing that thrills you, it's a dopamine chemical release in your brain. This opera singer was pointing out that what she had learned from the veteran opera singers was that the longer you tease the brain, for lack of a better word, in approach of the release of chemicals, the longer you you build up the chemical. So the high note is more powerful the more you've teased the brain to expect the high note. But if you haven't teased the brain enough to expect the high note, then the high note is great, but it's not as much of a release of dopamine as the brain possibly could release. And that is what I think is so great about this kind of opening and the slow burn opening is that it is the slow burn opening is teasing our brain to go, there's tension here. The tension's growing here. But note that you can draw out that tension. Now, you can actually fail at this too and like interrupt the tension too soon or take too long to get to the point. You can do that. But a lot of the opening scenes that we're going to discuss, they do the best possible drawing out of that tease so that when your brain gets the dopamine hit later because the high note has occurred or the climax has occurred in the story, um, that it is that much more powerful. So I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that that was 
this opening scene is so powerful because for the first thing is like I talked about earlier, it's unexpected. I do I I'm not seeing aliens. I'm not seeing tension. I'm not seeing a spaceship. I'm seeing two guys in a room, right? Like, and then there's tension between these two guys in a room and it's a very much of a slow burn, which is building up that dopamine chemical, I think in my brain, which I thought was really, really fascinating. So, um, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of the movies in here. Like there's some exceptions to that rule. I can think of like the matrix, for example, is the other version where it's like, boom, we're going to hit you with action right off the bat. Um, it's not going to be so much of a slow burn, but a lot of, I think I'm thinking of inglorious bastards, which we'll talk about in the series, total slow burn. It's about as slow of a burn as you can possibly have with that tension. Um, which is really, really fascinating. Uh, any comments about that, Caleb, before I ask this last question? No other than to say on your checklist for what makes a good opening scene, mm. pacing should be there. Ooh, um, yeah. And pacing is, only, you know, if you're writing something like a screenplay, it's only partially, only partially are you able to control pacing because the actors mm. and the, right. the way it's shot <laughs> and the way it's directed will all have an effect on it. But just when you're thinking about what you're doing, keep pacing in mind, mm. as well as tone, as well as theme, as well as introductions, as well as characters and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And by the way, you brought up earlier um, that you looked up the screenplay. I did as well because I was hoping I was hoping to see how this this opening scene was was written. You can go find the Alien Covenant screenplay, as Caleb mentioned. It won't be this scene won't be in there, um, which is its own piece of interesting information because I think one of the things I'll try and do as we continue this series is to showcase the screenplays where we can actually read what happens um, in the scene because those can be really fascinating learning points as well um, and since we're dealing with movies obviously like what Caleb said is just is very true which is these things build on each other I've been watching um, on Disney plus I've been watching this show called inside Pixar and the amount of time Pixar takes from an artist, an artistry perspective to say, yeah, this was on, this is in the screenplay, but when we handed it off to the animator, here's how they specifically took that portion of the screenplay and, and made their, made their own artistic choices on top of the screenplay to be more creative and to double down on what the screenplay was trying to communicate to you is striking. So just, no, as we talk through this, we'll try and get through the screenplays, but a lot of times there's so much that's put on top of the screenplay that it's that that's its own lesson, right? So we'll we'll try and do that where possible. Um, this is sort of just a follow-up to the last question I asked. So there might not be a whole lot more to discuss here. But what, in your opinion, Caleb, are the key elements of this scene from a storytelling pers perspective that make it work? In other words, if you were to look at this scene, we say it's a great scene. And if those elements were not there, we would have said, well, maybe it's a mediocre scene or maybe it's even a bad scene. There are such things as bad opening scenes, by the way, um, and in great movies even. But what elements are present that storytellers could take away or that viewers could take away and analyze in other openings that we might watch? Um, I think I would summarize it as every line of dialogue introduces new information, Ooh. which is not easy to do, um, <laughs> you know, but you have limited real estate at the opening of your story to pull people in, you know, like this, this is only four or five pages probably in, right. in if, you know, in the screenplay right. of limited real estate, but you need to use all of it. Um, and, we all tend to put stuff in there that doesn't need to be in there. That's part of why your, your opening scene may be the wrong scene. Right. And so just make sure every line, even if it's a descriptive line, that's going to be shot and it's not going to be said by anybody. Mm. Every line needs to introduce new information. I love that. Yeah. Cause this does that really, really well. Um, it, I'm going to add on top of that, that one of the things that I was going to bring up was that the subtle, I've brought this up already, but the subtle increase in tension. 
And what do I mean by that? Now, granted, this is a movie, so we're seeing visuals. And when they start the music in this scene, go back and when you watch this scene, note when they start the music. Because they start the music, the tension is increasing from the moment his eye is being showcased visually on the screen. The tension is increasing from that moment because the first few moments is the tension of going, what's happening here? It's, it's, the, it's the question of, it's what we would call mystery. It's our, the audience's desire to figure out what is gonna happen next and why this is, why this is playing out in front of their face, right? Yeah, you, you can go listen to JJ Abrams talk about his mystery box um, and why that's compelling to audiences. But every line of dialogue, to your point, every small motion that the characters make is all building tension throughout the scene. So if, if Wayland doesn't ask David, is just take out, we take out a, 30 seconds of the film, this beginning of the film. Take out 30 seconds where Waylon asks David to play something on the piano. And then after David makes a choice, Waylon critici criticizes that choice. That's just a small amount of tension. Now, does he say something that's not true? No, he says something that's very true. That piece is very different played solely on piano than played with an orchestra. So he's not commenting on something that's not factually accurate. He's commenting on something that is factually accurate, which makes it subtle tension because outright tension would have been, what a bad choice, David, you're an idiot, right? Like that would have been too much. It would have not allowed us to go a little bit farther and just say like, well, why would he, why would he bring that up in that way? We might not even perceive it as a subtle criticism or a critique the way that it's meant to be perceived the first time we watch it. But it leads us down a path of saying he's already criticized David based on David's free will to make a choice of what he's going to do next. He makes that choice. He's criticized or critiqued for that choice, um, which then sets up when Waylon asks David to get him a cup of tea and David's first response is essentially to not obey. And that's when the music comes in. And that's where we realize that the amount of tension between these two characters is such that if we were to let this scene play out, it is possible that this would this scene would end in David ripping Wayland apart just because he could, right? Like, uh, and so I think that, that that's some of the elements of it, like, like adding that tension to your point, one line of dialogue at a time, one visual at a time. Um, musically, obviously in, in a screenplay, we don't really say when the music starts, but just to be aware of like, if you were to start music in this scene, when would it start and why, right? And when I say music, it's not the actual music on screen because that's when he plays the piano, but rather the soundtrack when the soundtrack starts. Um, so include mystery and include tension and build those incredibly slowly. I think that's some of the things to watch for if you're an audience, but also some of the things that you can, as a storyteller, attempt to attempt to copy. Um, yeah, I, I think the summary is don't waste a single word. Ooh, there you go. Don't waste a single. By the way, uh, if you had a if you had a screenplay which by the way, other people have told me that this screenplay that I'm about to say um, would have been a great addition to our series. And it would have been, it's just that a lot of people have already talked about it. But can you think of one that doesn't waste a lot of words that's like your epitome of like a tight screenplay? Even if it goes beyond the opening? Hmm. Maybe No Country for Old Men. That's what comes to mind first. Ooh, that's awesome. I want to go, I actually want to, I actually want to watch that one again. Um, I would love to to analyze it from that perspective too. Mine is um, mine is the Dark Knight. I, if you watch the Dark Knight as a film, I challenge you to find one line of dialogue in that film that is not furthering the story. Um, this is not true of all of Christopher Nolan's pieces, a lot of which have exposition for exposition's sake. They have, not that, not that that's bad. He's doing very heady stuff. Sometimes he just needs to explain it. 
but that is one of the tightest scripts that I have ever, <laughs> ever witnessed on screen. It's just every single line of dialogue does something to further the story. Um, every single moment in that film is moving towards a conclusion. It's from a storytelling perspective. I think it's really fantastic. Uh, a lot of people have talked about the opening. We're not going to talk about the opening. It's another great opening. You can go watch it and analyze it yourself or let us know what you love about it. Um, but yeah, any other thoughts that you want to bring up before we close out this show? We're at about a little over an hour now. I think that's it. I think so too. We've, we've analyzed four minutes and 30 seconds of screen time. We've taken an hour and five minutes to talk about it. Well, that is it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast on your preferred podcast provider or over at the Art of Storytelling, the Story Geeks YouTube channel where we record these shows live in two weeks, July 19th on our YouTube channel and then July 26th on our podcast feed. We'll be back to talk about another great movie opening one that I added actually once upon a time in the West, which is one of my favorite movie openings. So we hope that you will join us for that one. Just be aware too, if you're watching this on YouTube, all of these will hit the podcast feed a week after they're recorded. So July 12th, um, next Monday, this will hit the podcast feed. I uh, hope you'll join us for all of the future of what we're going to be talking about on this podcast. And I realized, just realized I didn't leave notes for myself about what we're going to talk about next, but next, the next one is up we're doing up next or actually, sorry. Once Upon a Time in the West is, is next. Up is coming. We're going to talk about Moulin Rouge. We're going to talk about um, a whole host of really good movie openings. The Matrix is on there. Um, you can check out the Story Geeks Facebook group and go see all of the things that we're doing. There's a whole planned out schedule for you there. And as always, special thanks to our monthly Patreon supporters. Here are the awesome supporters who support our nonprofit through Patreon. Zach Linton, the No Midnight Podcast, Sean R. Reed, Anthony Holder, Ray DeLeon, Brianna, Bryce Cox, Young Money Savvy, Adam Vargas, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lujeau, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Moe. Please consider supporting us over on Patreon. Just go to thestorygeeks.com to support us over there. Even if it's only a couple dollars a month, that makes a big difference for us. Until next time, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. We'll see you on the next episode.